0: Welcome
1: to the Expert PK and
0: Newbie Podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together, we discuss it and we get three different perspectives from three different people. Uh, as always, I'm Joshua Lee, the PK. I've got with me Lachlan Miller, the expert and Morgan Carter, the newbie. Hello. Hello. How are we how are you all doing this week? Good? Good.
0: Yeah, just busy, busy time of year. Um, we had a really cool all in worship night at my church. We're in November rain, so we're focusing on the Holy Spirit this month. We had a really cool encounter night.
2: You said November rain. What does that mean?
0: Yeah, so it's just um we just dedicate November every year to the Holy Spirit. So it's just four intense weeks. We have like guest speakers come in and we just focus on the spirit raining
2: over people. Uh, that type of rain, not like, not like weather rain. No, not like rain over. Like. <laughs> yeah, they're the guys that have been
1: causing all the flooding because they keep praying <laughs> about rain.
2: <laughs> nice. How are you, Lachie?
1: Um, Well, it's been a week of people, which has been lovely. Like I think Em and I have had a different person over every night for dinner this week. Mm. And so just lots and lots of people in this week, which is nice as we head towards Christmas. Uh, all our Christmas decorations are up. Oh, wow. And it wasn't even November yet, and M decided that it was time for us to start getting into the Christmas spirit. Uh, so I must say our place is looking really lovely with all the decorations up, but I was a uh, December 1st is when they should go up person and here we are in the middle of November and we are very much ready for Christmas.
2: Yeah, I'm waiting for us to to do the uh, Christmas decor pu- putting up. We just need to get the decor for, <laughs> first before we can then, <laughs> then put it up. Yeah, we're coming into that sort of end of year Christmas season. Everything seems to get real busy. Mm. Everyone wants to sort of square everything w- away from... For the year and have their have their different breaks i've just been busy editing this and now i'm in post-production for the big client work that we have and so that's a bit a bit scary because there's now a a solid deadline Mm. but no no that's that's all that's all part of it and now it's it's quite exciting to get that far far into it as well so yeah we are at the pointy end of of matthew this Mm. is our second last episode that we are doing on the book of matthew Second second last episode on just read, on reading the book, we then have another episode after next week's episode, which is the Q&A episode. So as I've said last week, and I'll just keep on saying, that's the Q&A episode. So put in all your questions that you've gathered throughout the entire season of Matthew, because we're going to attempt to answer all those questions in that episode. So that's going to be a dedicated Q&A episode. So Morgan, what chapters are we looking at today?
0: Today, we're reading 26 and 27.
2: Today's passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 26 and 27.
0: Hopefully you have read these chapters in preparation. If not, please pause now and read those chapters. These chapters begin with Jesus predicting his arrest and crucifixion. These events directly play out before us as Jesus shares his final meal with his disciples, is arrested in Gethsemane, and has multiple trials. All of this leads to his conviction, flogging, crucifixion and death.
2: So just to recap, last episode we looked at Jesus' last sermon yep. and he was talking about the temple being destroyed and his second coming and then we sort of looked at parables uh, more referring to about being ready for uh, his eventual return. Yep. And so we now then move into Uh, His betrayal Mm. and his death.
1: Well, you could say we move into the climax of the book. Mm. Um, As I was doing some reading for this episode, I came across this quote, which I think is a bit of an exaggeration. But Martin Kehler says, the Gospels are passion narratives with extended introductions. In other words, he's saying the first 25 chapters of Matthew was just the intro (laughs) <laughs> and now we're at the
2: important part. Just the intro. It doesn't necessarily feel just the intro. I think there's a bit more important things than just the intro.
1: I agree. And he's not saying the first 25 chapters are not important, just to be clear. Mm. But he is just trying to really elevate what is about to happen in this final section, which we often call the passion narrative, which is
2: the the story of Easter, the death and
1: resurrection of Jesus,
2: and so I guess that's why the the movie, the Passion of the Christ, is called the Passion of the Christ. Exactly.
1: Can I ask
0: what the Passover is? Uh,
1: if you remember the story of Exodus way back in the Old Testament, where uh, Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt, Passover was the celebration of the Exodus. Really, it is the moment where God sends the final plague on Egypt and wipes out all the firstborns across Egypt, except for those who painted their doorposts with the blood of a lamb. And so God passed over those houses. And so that is what they remember, that God saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And every year the Israelite people would celebrate this moment. What is uh, particularly interesting now that we're in the period of Passover in the text is that the Passover lamb is sacrificed every year as part of this moment. And it is sacrificed on the Friday afternoon at the exact time that Jesus is about to be sacrificed. Mm. So there is a quite a bit of symbolism happening that we've now reached the Passover festival and the death of Jesus.
2: I think that's more than just a coincidence. <laughs> really? Why do you think that, mm. Josh? Yeah. And this is another sort of um, predicting of Jesus' death. He's mm. saying this to his disciples straight after he is just given this sermon. Mm. Going to verse 3 here while sort of sticking in this, this spot. Was the author in the room of the leading priests and elders that were, that were meeting? No. No. How did Matthew know that went down? Um, I haven't thought about this question until right now. But my
1: guess is at the, at the end of chapter 27, we're going to be introduced to a character called Joseph of Arimathea. And he is actually a member of this council, mm. but also a follower of Jesus. And so we know that people exist who could have very easily passed on to Matthew exactly what went down while also being predisposed towards Jesus, like being very positive to him. Mm. And so I think he just heard it from an eyewitness and figured out what happened behind closed doors. It would make sense getting it from other sources. Mm. It's also interesting that you point out that this is the fourth time Jesus predicts his death because in a previous episode, you asked that. Ah. You asked, how many times does Jesus predict his death? And at the time, we had read three, so I answered three. But clearly, here is the fourth and final time Mm. that he will explain to his disciples what is about to happen. And as we read, like the next two chapters takes place over two days. days. This is just Thursday and Friday. Mm. And so he's
2: predicting his death right up until the moment that it happens. This is is now uh, all... Of what we call Good Friday. And it's always funny calling it Good Friday because <laughs> yep. it never feels like it's good. It's probably important to point out that it's a good Friday
1: because it's good for us. Yes. Especially as we read the rest of this chapter and discuss it. It's not particularly good for Jesus. No. But it is good for us because of what his death achieves. So the high priests here have a, quite a dilemma in front of them. The dilemma we read about it at the beginning of chapter 26 is they are done with Jesus. They want him out of the picture. They want to put him to death because of the things he said. And if you remember last episode, he like slams them like with his seven woes about the leaders of the religious people. And so, they're not happy with him at all, but their dilemma is they want to arrest Jesus, but they are scared to do that during the Passover festival because of how popular Jesus is. But after the Passover festival, he will leave Jerusalem like all other pilgrims to Jerusalem do after the Passover festival. And then he'll almost be out of their reach for the next little period of time.
2: Mm. And
1: so they're stuck in this weird situation of we want him dead ASAP. It's hard to do during the festival because there's too many people around. But if we wait till after the festival, he's gone. He's out of here. And it's into that situation where Judas actually solves their dilemma. Because Judas can provide them a way to arrest Jesus secretly and privately because he knows all the movements of Jesus. And so they can arrest him during the festival without a big crowd.
2: And that's sort of sort of like jumping ahead a bit. But Judas agrees to betray, betray Jesus. Mm. Is his motivations only purely just monetary?
1: We don't know his motivations, to be honest. The story that happens just before him agreeing to betray Jesus is he has a disagreement with Jesus about this very expensive perfume that is poured all over Jesus. That is the preceding episode. Um, we don't know whether Judas became disillusioned with Jesus. We don't know whether he was just enticed by the money he could gain. We actually don't know what was happening in Judas's heart. Mm. But the key point is he decided that it was worth 30 pieces of silver to betray someone that he had followed closely for three years.
2: And so that sort of leads us nicely on to the anointing of Jesus. Mm. It was actually Judas who had the disagreement here.
1: Yeah, so if you read this exact same story in John 12, you will see that it is Mary, as a sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, who anoints Jesus with this very expensive perfume. And while Matthew says the disciples objected, in the Gospel of John chapter 12, it is just Judas who objects. Mm. It is Judas who objects, and then John tells us That he objects because of greed, because he's the member of the 12 disciples who holds the money bags. He's like the Uh. accountant of the group, and he looks after all of their money. And he wanted them to sell the perfume so he could have more money, is what John says in chapter 12.
0: So does this anointing have anything to do with when we anoint someone with oil in church during prayer?
1: Jesus is the Messiah, right? And the Messiah is just the translation of saying the anointed one. And so anointing people with oil has a very long biblical history. You anoint kings, you anoint priests, you anoint prophets. Jesus is the anointed one. You anoint people before, not before, you anoint people after they die. They anoint their body with oil as you prepare them for burial. I'm not exactly sure why we uh, anoint people in church, to be honest, with oil as we pray for them, but there is something special about this
2: idea. And so Jesus is saying here after sort of the interactions of him being anointed by Mary, she has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial sort of foreshadowing what's going to happen what's going to happen to him next.
1: Yeah. And then I always find verse 13 particularly interesting where Jesus says, "Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is mm. preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her." There's just something nice about the fact that this woman pours a very expensive perfume over Jesus as an act of devotion mm. and Jesus goes She'll be remembered for this. Like this act of devotion won't go unheard of. People across the planet, as this gospel is preached, will hear about her.
2: And we're talking about it right now. Literally so it's,
1: 2,000 if... years later, here we are talking about this woman, mm. talking about Mary, who anoints Jesus with oil. And then we move back again to Judas portraying Jesus. What is interesting is in Matthew's gospel, this is actually only the second time Judas has been mentioned. He was mentioned in the list of the 12 disciples slash apostles way back in chapter 10 but he hasn't appeared by name since like the group of disciples has been with Jesus the whole time mm. this is only the second time that he's named but he is named now because he becomes a central actor in what happens next a central player is probably mm. a better way to phrase that
2: and so this discussion as we sort of said before we sort of know that this private discussion happened because potentially because of Joseph potentially potentially it's it's sort of crazy that someone would betray Jesus like you know we i don't think we are sitting here today we wouldn't we wouldn't i don't think i don't <laughs> think I, I i would like to say if we were in the same shoes we we wouldn't so it's almost uh, even, even go coming from a disciple as well someone so sort of in that not the inner inner circle but in 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 a circle with with Jesus and spending all that time with him it's almost mind boggling that after spending all that time seeing everything that you've seen, hearing everything you've heard with Jesus, that you would just be like, nah, I'll betray him. Yeah.
1: And as Jesus says in verse 24, woe to him who betrays the son of man, it would be better if he was not born. Mm. Like this is such a serious thing Judas has decided to do. We don't know why, but he makes this decision. And he gets his 30 pieces of silver, which, I don't know, it's about... Four months worth of wages. So if mm. the the average yearly income in Australia is 40K, he's just been handed 13K, which is a sizable amount.
2: So in our Bibles, moving up to the section of the Last Supper and Jesus and the disciples uh holding the Last Supper. We talked briefly before about the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. Mm. Have any of us here ever experienced a Jewish Passover? No.
0: No. Have
2: you? Yes. My church has done a version of the Passover where we will hold a Passover meal. And I've run um, these Passover meals where us as a church, we try and sort of have a more authentic Passover where we have, where we, go through the different elements of the passover we look at the um, exodus stories and we drink from the fourth cup except we do is we sort of have that uh, traditional jewish passover meal but we also then link it back to jesus and how he's sort of changed it for us and how it has become what we have as communion
1: what's particularly interesting is that jesus's last supper here is a- Probably the night before the official Passover. Ah. And so the official Passover would have happened on Friday night as the lambs were slaughtered in the afternoon. Mm. Whereas Jesus, very explicitly in John's gospel, holds this dinner on the Thursday night. And so I suspect Jesus knew that he wouldn't be around for that final meal on the Friday. And so he actually has Passover, effectively, the day early, which is probably why there's no mention of lamb in this story. like eating lamb and talking about the sacrificial lamb is a key component of a mm. Jewish Passover meal and yet we don't see any of that in this last supper scene because it's the day early
2: he just takes the unleavened bread portion and the and the cup and i believe it is the fourth cup that he then refers the which i think is the cup of salvation if i'm remembering it because there is the, the four different cups, but it's the cup of salvation. I think that he then turns it to himself. This is all where it sort of all, it it it, it all blends and yeah. you know, where we're transitioning from traditional Jewish tradition to C- Christian tradition.
1: Yes, because Jesus reappropriates what is a common Jewish tradition mm. and turns it about himself. Yeah. Like this this is where we get communion from. Yes. This is the founding of that idea of communion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Uh, Talking about this Last Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, what Jesus is doing here is setting up a way for us to always remember what he is about to do, his body broken, his blood poured out for us. And we can always remember that in a simple meal. We also have Jesus in the Last Supper talking about that someone is just about to betray him. Yeah. Which is always an interesting conversation because I think all the (laughs) disciples are shocked by
2: this. And it's saying here, one by one, they answer him. Mm. It's not even like they all sort of, no, no, no. Simon answered, no, I I would never do that. Peter answers, no, I would. Going one Like like how almost awkward and tense it would have been.
0: Who kind of decided who got to attend this Last Supper? Like who... Was there like a guest list? Like who got to choose?
1: I mean, Jesus obviously chose who would join him for this final meal. And from all appearances, it is just his 12 disciples. It is his close group of friends that he spent three years doing ministry with.
0: Just kind of seems rough that like he doesn't have his family at his last supper.
1: In the Gospel of John, while Jesus is on the cross dying, his mother is there watching him die. And he says to his disciple John, who writes the Gospel of John, this woman is now your mother. He, like, hands over responsibility as a son to John to look after her.
2: Mm. And so we know that
1: she's in Jerusalem at the time.
2: He says here, mark my words, I will not drink wine again. Later on, he spits out wine that someone's given him. Is this sort of like him keeping his word.
1: I think it's more to remind us that when he comes again in glory and power, it's to invite us into eternity, into celebration. So you need to look at what wine is primarily used to represent in scripture. Mm. And wine primarily represents enjoyment or merriment, celebration. And so what he's saying is, I'm not going to drink wine again Mm. until there's a real moment for celebration.
2: Until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So that's when the celebration will happen. Poor, poor Peter.
1: Yeah, he's uh, very confident in himself. Mm,
2: He is. He is.
1: But I think what is important to remember is as Jesus here after the Last Supper predicts Peter's denial, all the other disciples share Peter's confidence in verse 35. And so all of them go into this moment going, we would never betray you. We would never leave you. We would never abandon you. Mm. And uh, while Peter is the the focal point here, all of them abandon him as soon as he's arrested. Only Peter actually follows him. Mm. So Peter does the best after he's arrested, but then also ultimately denies Jesus three
2: times. And it's like, you know, coming off the back of of Last Supper and saying that you will betray. Obviously everyone's been like, "Nah, we would... We would never, never do that. In that sort of moment, they wouldn't. Mm. But unfortunately, as we come to see, push comes to shove, Peter sort of chooses his own skin. Which is a very
1: human response. Mm, it like is. a very normal, understandable response.
2: Moving on to human responses, we have Jesus praying in the garden. Mm, such an interesting section. In verse 39, he's saying, my, at least in my translation, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet. I want your will to be done, not mine. So he's 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 obviously asking for God's will, and not not for his for Jesus's will to to come first, but God's will. But the way I read this is sort of Jesus having this very sort of human moment, almost in sort of a very, in vulnerability, saying, "If this, if my death doesn't have to happen." let it not happen but if it does then so be it and i sort of get that because jesus refers himself as he is taking he's going to drink from the cup of suffering and take that burden from from us that's my understanding
1: yeah absolutely i think this is where we see a clear distinction between jesus's two natures he has his human nature that is terrified at the thought of undergoing a really painful death but then he also has his god nature that goes i will do anything to make sure this plan of salvation can happen Mm, mm. and so while this scene in the garden can be a little bit scary or a little bit confusing we just see a really relatable moment in our savior
2: you know it's just like my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death you always you just like your heart pours out for jesus you feel so bad because you're like wow this man is crying out for, for, for help here mm. and especially then you know the disciples are just asleep they're just not even not even watching over him they're not even quote-unquote caring about mm. the, the sort of the almost internal torment and struggle that jesus is going he's put on a brave face through the last supper and everything and this is the sort of this moment of vulnerability of falling on his knees going i don't want this to happen if it doesn't need to
0: so how do we know what he
1: prayed?
2: Yeah, the, the disciples here are asleep, aren't they? So who was writing this down?
1: I think the best guess we have here is that we know from Luke's account, Luke's recording of the gospel, that for 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he made multiple appearances and continued to teach his disciples for 40 days. And I think what we are meant to assume is that he passed on that information to them at some point during those 40 days of teaching after the fact. I can imagine Peter, James and John after seeing the risen Jesus go, what, what did you pray for? Like what was happening in the garden? That was the last moment we saw you alive mm. was why you were praying. Like what what were you praying for? Did God answer your prayer? In fact, in the gospel of John, we get an even deeper insight into what Jesus prayed. Because in John chapter 17, we see that Jesus literally prays for us. Mm. And I'm not talking about like his disciples. I'm talking about in John 17, he prays for all who will believe in him, for all that will believe the message. And so we see Jesus praying for us in this moment. He prays for himself. He prays for the cup to be taken, but then he prays for his disciples who are going to be scattered. And then he prays for every future disciple. There's So much that happens in this time in the garden, Jesus must have passed on to his disciples at some point. The one other fun fact I want to add to this section before we move on is that Gethsemane means an oil press. And so they were probably in an olive grove that would have had an oil press on site. So you could actually get the oil out of the olives. And so if you're ever wondering, hey, what's Gethsemane? Why is it called that? There's your answer.
2: Is there a point, like for us, the readers, is there a point why the disciples are sleeping? Is there something like other than them just sort of sleeping? Is there any sort of significance of why they are sleeping?
1: I mean, I think Jesus explains it well where he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mm. Like here he is in his final moments and his disciples aren't even capable of supporting him as we've already said. And so I don't know if we're meant to draw any deeper significance than Jesus's statement that our flesh is weak our flesh is corrupted by sin. And so even when we would greatly desire to serve God and do things for him mm. and be very willing to do so. Sometimes we are simply unable to. Mm. We have
2: the, the good intentions, but we just unfortunately fall short.
1: What's interesting as Jesus ends this prayer is that he says, hey, I'm about to be arrested. Like he knows that is about to happen. But he could have foiled the entire plan by going somewhere else to pray. Judas betrays Jesus by going to the high priest and telling them where to find Jesus alone. But Jesus could have just gone somewhere else. And yet he walks headfirst into, I don't want to say destiny, that sounds a little too airy-fairy, but straight into God's plan. He doesn't deviate. He doesn't change it. He doesn't try to get around it. Here he is embracing it as Judas approaches him. And as Judas approaches him, Matthew specifically says Judas, one of the 12, which I think is meant to hit us hard Mm. about, hey, Judas is one of, Jesus's closest friends. He's one mm. of the 12 disciples and he is betraying Jesus. And we're meant to really feel that by remembering that he's one of the 12.
2: And he arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. Mm. This did not seem like it was a peaceful interaction.
1: No, not at all. And yet Jesus still welcomes Judas by saying friend. Like despite what is happening here, there, there is still love for Judas happening.
2: Whether it was mockingly, Judas still calls him rabbi.
1: Well, what's interesting actually about rabbi Is that by this point in the gospel, every other disciple is referring to Jesus as Lord. Uh And yet Judas goes back a step and only calls him teacher. Hmm. And so, from kind of Peter's declaration halfway through the book that Jesus is the Messiah, from that point onwards, Every disciple interaction calls him Lord.
2: Yeah, now he's sort of regressed.
1: Mm. And as you say, this is not a friendly interaction because there are swords and clubs. We are told in John that it is Peter who pulls out a sword to defend Jesus. And so a little showdown goes on and a servant of the high priest, a guy called Malchus, who is also named in John, gets his ear chopped off. Jesus tells them they've totally misread the situation. Yeah. In Luke, he heals the guy's ear. And then he points out here in Matthew that he doesn't need Peter to defend himself because he could have called down legions of angels to defend himself.
2: Mm. It's interesting that he points out, it's like, why didn't you arrest me in the temple?
1: Mm. I think he's just pointing out the dilemma we already talked about, mm. which is that they couldn't risk a public arresting because Jesus was popular, but they also wanted to arrest him before he left Jerusalem because otherwise he was almost beyond their reach again. And as he's arrested, all of those disciples who claim that they would never abandon him flee. Mm. into the night
0: I find that really sad because they were at the Last Supper and everything it's just like a really sad image to think of mm.
1: Yeah, literally a few hours ago they were sitting sharing a meal with Jesus
0: mm. it's just really sad do they come back? do we know if they come back? or is that them gone?
1: the 11 all come back so we'll hit chapter 28 next episode and we'll see the 11 disciples back and serving Jesus restored in their capacity as his disciples but in this moment they weren't there
2: So they're putting him on trial now because, as we've previously said, this is the only now opportunity they can put him on trial. There's now, it's sort of now or never. We have to to do this to get rid of him.
1: We have to deal with him.
2: The thing is that Jesus
1: has so many trials in these next few chapters, not all of which are recorded in Matthew. Matthew sort of records the two big ones, which is the trial here before the Sanhedrin and then the trial before Pilate. But we know from other Gospels that initially he has a trial before the former high priest, Annas, and that seems to be a delaying tactic while CFS here assembles the Sanhedrin. We also know that he has a trial before Herod, which is interesting because Herod always really wanted to meet Jesus, and he finally gets to, and Jesus doesn't say a single word to him. (laughs) Matthew doesn't record that trial in front of Herod, but Jesus just sort of bounces around from authority group to authority group Mm. because ultimately it's only Pilate who can make the decision To put him to death which is what every sort of trial wants to end at the trials want to end at jesus dead but it's Mm. not until Pilate finally makes that decision that that actually happens and so this trial here is almost a bit of a sham and so the religious leaders are trying to find any excuse to put him to death but even they know that they don't have that authority in a roman-occupied state only Mm. the roman governor has the authority to put someone to death.
0: What is the Sanhedrin that is in your translation that's not in mine?
1: Yeah, your translation potentially uses the word council instead. So Mm -hmm. the Sanhedrin is kind of the supreme court of the Jews. It was centered in Jerusalem. The high priest was a part of it. The scribes are a part of it. They were the people responsible for maintaining order in both civil and religious situations Mm. for the Jewish people, but they were ultimately still accountable to the Roman governor. So they walked this fine line of we are the highest ruling body amongst the Jews and we need to rule them in a way that is in line with Jewish customs and laws, but we because we've been occupied now are also answerable to the Romans and we don't want to annoy them too much.
0: And is this Pilate, the one I've been calling Pilate,
1: part of that? No. So Pilate is the Roman governor. And so this Jewish Sanhedrin is going to make the decision that Jesus is worth putting to death, but they don't have that authority, which is why they then go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and Mm -hmm. uh, sort of try to twist Jesus's words so that Pilate will also agree that he deserves death. And so they start off by just trying to find any witness they can to bring a charge against Jesus, which is not the way a court case is meant to work, right? <laughs> you don't bring someone in and they just be like, has anyone got anything that we could get on this guy?
0: And you also don't spit and slap.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they once they decide that he's guilty, they start dishing out punishment to him immediately, which is not allowed under Jewish law. Like, that's not okay. You don't pre-punish someone. But anyway, they eventually find two witnesses who agree that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple. Now, interestingly, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus never says anything quite like this. Now, he has made quite a scene in the temple by flipping tables. He has talked about how the temple will be destroyed, but he has never directly claimed to be the one that will do that. In John's gospel, we find similar claim where Jesus says that he will destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. But John comments that he's talking about his own body will be destroyed and raised up in three days. Regardless, they get two witnesses that agree that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple And a threat against the temple is a threat against the most precious thing in the worship and religious life of Israel. And so they get quite upset about this. And then they directly ask him, who do you think you are? Like, are you this Messiah? Mm. Because only the Messiah could make such a grand but also terrible claim. Mm. And Jesus responds with, yes, I am the Messiah, but more than just the human Messiah you expected I'm also the divine Messiah who sits at the right hand of God. And that is the moment the high priest yells out blasphemy, tears his robes, and they all agree that they now have the evidence from Jesus' very own lips that he must be put to death.
2: And the high priest is so just, you know, in shock of it. He's tearing his own Mm. robe. It's not anyone else's robe. It's his own robe that he's tearing. Which, again,
1: is actually not allowed under Old Testament law. Hmm. Other people can tear their robes out of grief or out of anger. But the Levitical law actually forbids the high priest from doing that action because it's an undecent thing for the high priest who represents God in their society to do.
2: They're breaking like every rule left, right and center. Yeah. Under Jewish law, you're
1: also not allowed to have a trial under the cover of darkness and must always be done Uh, during the day. And here we are, nighttime, having Mm. a trial as well. Everything about this trial is wrong.
2: They are the hypocrites.
1: 100%.
0: Peter was one of the disciples, wasn't he? Yep. So why did he stay around when all the others fled?
1: I think this is a real positive on behalf of Peter. Mm. So Peter actually follows at a distance into the very courtyard of the high priest house to watch all this unfold. All the other disciples have fled. Peter actually comes, but then we see him fail dramatically. And so on one hand, we have Jesus's bold confession before the highest authorities in all of the land that he is the Messiah. And on the other hand, we have Peter at basically the exact same time, scared of a servant girl mm. asking if he believes Jesus is the Messiah. I just think
0: it's interesting that it's Peter, because like we said before, Peter just always pops up and he's like <laughs> the one that stayed around. <laughs> he's like, me again.
1: I mean, he, Peter is the rock. is yeah. mm. the rock the church will be built on, but it's a pretty shaky rock in these verses. <laughs> it isn't? is. And what's interesting is that that is the last time Peter is mentioned by name in this gospel. He will appear in chapter 28 as the group of disciples but we don't ever see Peter restored after this moment. Mm. We read that story in like John 21, but I assume Matthew expects us to already know that Peter is restored in a sense. Like Peter is such a big and famous figure in the early church that even though we don't read about him, res- like having a restoration moment with Jesus later on in Matthew's gospel, Matthew assumes we must know that because Peter mm. is the leader of the the church at the time.
2: Peter would have been arrested and also potentially put on trial if He was caught. Potentially, yeah. Mm. I think we also see Matthew's skill
1: as an author in this little section. And what I mean by that is, as we just said, Peter and Jesus are being compared because Peter massively fails while Jesus does a grand proclamation. But then also Peter and Judas are compared because they both fail. But then Peter has this moment of remorse whereas Judas sort of fails the test even more dramatically.
0: So when I opened up my Bible to read 27, sometime in the past when I initially got this Bible, which was about a year ago, I have highlighted the three words Judas hangs himself. And I have absolutely (laughs) no idea why, but the only thing I can think of is I've also highlighted down the bottom, it's a study Bible. It says rather than face his crushing guilt. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if it was something I read and I was just so shocked at like the extremity of what had happened. But, yeah, I just had that
2: highlighted I mean it is quite shocking because as far as sort of New Testament stories go, this is probably a quite extreme shocking story that we don't often see as part of sort of the gospels. maybe that more horrific side, a bit more Old Testament or later on in the Bible. but yeah, just a disciple outright killing himself mm. is is mm. quite significant, and it's one of one of the twelve here yep. realizes what he's done, realizes. That he has just condemned the son of God to death, mm. throws away his money, wanting to sort of take it all back, realizes he can't, and then takes it to an extreme measure. Here, mm. it is very sad.
0: And I think I'm. This is a bit of a trigger warning, but I find it interesting. The field of blood, because if someone hangs himself, it's not like a stabbing with lots of blood. Like, why is it called field of blood?
1: There's kind of two options for why it might be called the field of blood. The first is that it could be where Judas hanged himself. Like they purposely bought the piece of land that he hung himself on. The other option is that it was bought with blood money. Like the money that they used to buy Mm. it with was money that was spent on killing someone. Like that is blood money by every definition. Mm. So for either of those reasons, they decided to call it the field of blood.
2: Tricky question. What happens to Judas in the afterlife?
1: That is a great question. (laughs) It's just a a light one, you know. (laughs) Jesus does say it would have been better for Judas had he not been born. Like Jesus' exact words is it would be better if Judas did not exist than the fact that he betrayed Jesus on the cross. And so what we see here in his suicide, while he clearly regrets his mistakes, I don't think we see repentance. I think we see mm. despair. I think we see someone who sees no other way out. But I don't think we see true repentance. I could be totally and utterly wrong, but yeah. that is the way I think the story reads.
0: Can I ask what the Barabbas Barabbas are? Definitely. What is a Barabbas?
1: Uh, Barabbas is just a name that means son of Abbas. Oh,
0: okay. And he's a notorious criminal, isn't
1: he? Yes.
2: Which is, you know, adds more even more weight to this sort of story because it would be crazy that you're wanting this criminal out on the streets mm. that you would release. Mm. Him over Jesus.
1: Yeah. I think Pilate misplayed this event immensely. Mm. So, what I think Pilate thinks here is I have no reason to want to put Jesus to death. I need a way out of this. I suspect the only reason that the religious leaders have brought him before me is out of jealousy. Mm. So, if Jesus is their king and popular, then I'll get them to choose between Barabbas, a murderer. And Jesus, their king, and they'll definitely choose their king, Jesus. And then I've weaseled my way out of this mm. situation that the Jewish leaders have tried to concoct. I think what he failed to realize is that Jesus was a Galilean prophet, right? But here in Jerusalem, someone like Barabbas was probably more famous and more loved as a freedom fighter than jesus the prophet was and then you get the high priest whipping the crowd into a frenzy yeah and they're like yeah definitely release barabbas would much prefer him and so Pilate thinks he had a, a sneaky way to release an innocent man and has totally backfired what he ends up doing is crucifying an innocent man and letting go a notorious criminal <laughs> yeah what really struck me as i read this story is the name of barabbas was jesus barabbas Like Jesus is a very common first name. There's actually nothing that unique or special about the name Jesus in the first century. Yeah, right. And so Mm. Pilate offers them a choice between two Jesuses. Mm. Like what Jesus do you want me to release? Jesus Barabbas? So Jesus, son of Abbas? Or Jesus Christ, like Jesus, son of God? Like which one do you want? A lot of people will comment that the first person Jesus died for was Barabbas because he took the place of Barabbas on that cross. It's Mm. almost like the first moment of salvation that happened was replacing him on the cross.
0: In the next part, we read um, that he washed his hands. What's the significance behind that? Like in that moment, it seems like quite a strange thing to just wash your
1: hands. I never thought I would reference Shakespeare on this podcast. but (laughs) If you remember in the play Macbeth, where Mrs. Macbeth is trying to wash off the spot of blood, that is effectively what Pilate is doing here. It's the symbol that he does in front of everyone To show that he's not responsible for the judgment he's about to proclaim upon Jesus. Mm. He's like, I'm washing my hands of this situation. I'm clean of his blood. I've washed Mm -hmm. off all the guilt and responsibility because I think this is wrong, but I'm handing him over to be put to death anyway.
0: And then we hear the people say, his blood be on us. So is that like a statement that they're claiming it?
1: Yeah. As Mm. Pilate washes his hands of their blood, they happily accept
2: that responsibility.
0: The imagery behind that is so powerful.
2: It is like imagining that it is a big like imagery imagery moment there of, mm. of the responsibility being transferred over.
1: So Jesus is handed over to be killed.
2: Yeah. Oh, Jesus! Just his his road to the cross. Like like the literal road to the cross is just brutal.
1: First, he is flogged, like flayed to the bone. Is also mm. how you could translate that word. Ugh. Then he is mocked in front of all the soldiers in kind of like the common meeting courtyard area that the Roman soldiers hung out in, like he's mocked in front of them and then eventually walks up to the hill where he's going to be crucified
2: while carrying his cross. They're mocking him saying, hail king of the Jews. You know, they're mocking him, but on the same breath, that's well, he is the king of the mm. Jews. It's the irony.
0: I kind of wonder what he would have been like. Like would he have been howling tears or would he have just trying to be like strong and not? Like ignoring what everyone was saying and doing to him, or like how he would have been?
1: I think we get the impression that Jesus is silent throughout most of this. Now, that doesn't Mm. mean that's right, but in all the trial scenes, we see that Jesus says very, very few words. He stays Mm. very quiet. And most people think that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 7, where it talks about how the Messiah, the lamb, is silent before the slaughter. Mm. Like before being slaughtered, the lamb is silent. That's the case in the trial scenes. It doesn't mean. Jesus didn't have human emotional reactions to then the torture that takes place. But that's at least what I've always pictured is Jesus just silently enduring all of this.
2: When we talk about like, you know, the crosses that we carry, Jesus is here literally carrying Mm. a cross. Mm. We sort of get that saying from this. But the, the metaphor also is that Jesus is carrying the sins for us mm. in these final final moments. Jesus is carrying all of our burdens here.
1: And physically, he can't do it. And so mm. he's just been whipped to the bone and they need to rope in this guy, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross the rest of the way.
0: Would there have been anyone, like anyone at all, that would have been like, no, don't do this, you don't need to do this? Or was everyone kind of like on board with he was doing it anyway? Like his mum, for example, like would anyone have tried to stop him?
1: I mean, lots of people probably didn't want him to go to death or be crucified. But once the Romans made their decision that he was going to be crucified, he would have been led by a garrison up to the place where he's being crucified. There was no chance to stop it.
2: And public executions were also quite a event mm. that the sort of general public would attend and, and, and see. So not only do you mm. have the guards... You know, willing to stop anyone trying to stop it, but you also have a crowd gathering to witness this quote-unquote event.
1: The person who initiates a public execution is making a statement. They want everyone around to be like, don't do what this guy did. And so the Romans very much wanted that attitude of don't claim to be a king because we are the only authority here. And the Jews really wanted Jesus dead because this guy claimed to be the Messiah and we think that's wrong and untrue and he claimed equality with God. And so all these supporters of this public execution are sitting around watching it happen.
0: I guess I'm just like a little bit confused because people say Jesus chose to die for your sins, but they've told him he's like charged with this and he has to do it. So the choice part of it, I don't understand. Does
1: that make sense? Yeah, yeah of course. Um, the choice part comes in at a few sections. We looked at beginning of 26, where Jesus could have very easily stopped Judas from betraying him. He could have announced in front of all his disciples, hey, Judas is the betrayer, and his disciples would have held the man to the ground and beat him to death. We also know that Jesus claims he can call down legions of angels to free him. And so while Jesus has been told that you are now being put to death and executed, and you must now walk up this hill with your cross, we still believe in a Jesus who at literally any point could have gotten out of that situation. So So he still chose it. yeah. Yeah, while earthly it feels hopeless we know that Jesus could at any point have stopped this entire event. Mm. And then when we get to the death of Jesus, we read that he gave up his spirit. Most people, when it comes to crucifixion, actually took days to die, whereas Jesus was mm. on the cross for mere hours and then gave up his spirit. Like he he surrendered the will to live and died, whereas most people would take di- days via crucifixion to die.
0: Yeah, because I guess just how like Judas hung himself so quickly. It's just like Jesus put himself through a lot. So it's like just the choice of it to then be told that you will be crucified.
1: What I find interesting is when I hear a lot of sermons about the crucifixion of Jesus, we spend a lot of time on these harrowing gross details of exactly how painful and awful it was, which is is true. Like everything about that is true. This was such an awful situation. But none of the gospel writers spend a huge amount of time talking about that element they just sort of go through the flow of the story and the significance of the story but they don't spend time really dwelling on the really horrible aspects of it which i just find interesting given that's often the focus of a lot of sermons on this topic
2: i think it's really to emphasize what our savior is going through and what he's doing for us because i think we could easily just give a sermon of like He was led to the cross, died on the cross, and he died for our sins. But to really hit it home for people, we explain that he went through all this torment and all this suffering. So you must believe that he, you know... Um, is our saviour, or, or or something along that line? Maybe we do it to add that that sort of extra weight to it, or we just like the the dramatic scene that this all plays and the the, the narrative in it all.
1: And given how common crucifixion was in first century first century Israel, they probably didn't actually need to go to the details because everyone could immediately record in mind exactly what is going on.
0: It's a very sad and sombre.
1: It is. Episode? Yeah. Episode. <laughs> like very, very much so.
0: In my um Bible, something else I had highlighted was um at the end of verse 50 where it says, yielded up his spirit. Mm. Um, I had that highlighted and I know, had down the bottom highlighted too, even in death, that he maintains authority over his own destiny. Yeah. which I think is that's really powerful.
1: What we just chatted about, hey. Mm. Like, yeah. At every cool. moment along this, Jesus was in control, as awful as he yeah. was.
0: And did people kind of stay around the whole entirety of him dying the hours or did people, did he do it and then they all left and came back or did people just kind of wait there?
1: We get the impression from the gospels that people just hung around until he died. I'm sure there was a bit of coming and going amongst a bunch of people, but they Mm. watched it happen. What do we think about Jesus's line here? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Did God forsake Jesus? No. (laughs) (laughs) Or Jesus just said he did, though. Are you
2: you arguing with Jesus, Morgan? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like our our sort of like understanding of like Jesus and God, we're like, well, well, no, but...
0: (laughs) Like technically opposite, but I just feel like no.
2: I
1: mean, at this point, Jesus is holding the weight of all sins and being put to death. I can totally understand from a human sense how he would truly feel forsaken by his father. Interestingly enough, this is the only time that Jesus refers to God, but not to his father. He says, my God, no. instead of my father. Every other time he says, my father. But I think that's also significant. The line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the very first line of Psalm 22. And if you read the rest of Psalm 22, and if anyone standing there had bothered to recall to mind Psalm 22, They would have found an amazing symmetry between what happens in Psalm 22 and what is happening directly in front of them. So for instance, verse seven and eight talks about everyone mocks me. They sneer, they shake their head saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Like this is what we're reading about right now in Matthew and verses seven and eight of Psalm 22 talks about that. In verse 14 of Psalm 22, it says, my life is poured out like water. Here we are watching someone die. Verse 15 of Psalm 22 says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I am thirsty, which is why they keep trying to offer Jesus drinks here. Verse 16 of Psalm 22 says, they pierce my hands and my feet, which is exactly what happens in crucifixion. And so Psalm 22 was Mm -hmm. written years and years and years before this moment. And yet it perfectly predicts what is happening here in the crucifixion. Verse Mm -hmm. 17 of Psalm 22 says, I can count all my bones which we don't read about in Matthew's gospel. But in John's gospel, they come along and break the legs of everyone or all the crosses so that they'll die faster, except they don't break the legs of Jesus because he's already dead. And then probably more interestingly is verse 18 of Psalm 22 says, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing, which we read about right here in Mm -hmm. Matthew. And so had anyone paid attention to Jesus's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? they would have found that basically this entire event was perfectly predicted hundreds of years before.
0: I really like the imagery from um, 51 on about the temple was torn into and the earth shook. Mm. And there's a song that we have been using in November Rain, All Hail King Jesus, and it's the lyrics of that song are literally going through the story of this exact kind of verse and area. Um, And I think it's really like that would be really scary. Thinking it would be dark, like the ground shaking, the rocks are breaking. It would be really scary. And in the song, they um, reference it as the veil was torn.
2: The the veil being torn. If I could have a a crack at what what that means before, I'm sure you explain what (laughs) what what that means. So in the temples, there was an inner sanctum that literally almost no one could enter, and there was a veil that was put there. So the veil being, because it's not literally, is it literally being torn? Yeah, I think so. Literally so it literally being torn. Like symbolically, that being Jesus' death tears the veil and allows us to enter in that inner sanctum Mm. to to God. There's no sort of only specialty people can go into that inner sanctum. Everyone is welcome Mm. to God, if I'm getting that correct.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. In the temple was the most holy place. The high priest could only enter it once a year and Mm. The most holy place was separated from the rest of the temple by this huge, huge curtain. We're talking like a woven fabric of 72 twisted plates of 24 threads each that was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. This Mm. thing was massive and impressive and heavy. And God was thought to dwell directly within it. And Jesus's death that ripped it from top to bottom. So that's not mm. man ripping it because no. man would rip it from bottom to top mm. is uh, everyone can now have access to God. There is no most holy place. The barrier has been removed. And this is one of the consequences of Jesus dying. Mm. Like as he dies, firstly, darkness comes over all the land and then there's this great earthquake and then there's the curtain being torn into and then there's resurrected saints. And so yeah. we should probably cover all of those <laughs> before we move on. Uh, firstly, the darkness. Thalos was... uh ancient historian who lived in about AD 50 and he talks about an eclipse coinciding with the death of Jesus. The thing is, if you look at calendars of eclipses, so we could perfectly predict whenever there's going to be an eclipse because we know the rotation of the earth and the moon, there can't be an eclipse at the time of Passover. It is scientifically impossible. Mm. So rather than being an eclipse, this was probably a supernatural act which showed God's displeasure with this event. We see a similar thing in Amos chapter 8 of God sending darkness on the land to show his displeasure. And so I just find it so interesting that other sources record this darkness, this unexpected darkness coming across the land. And then there's this great earthquake, which potentially is what tore the curtain on a physical, practical level. It's also what broke open all these tombs. And also eventually led to what is the weirdest verse in the New Testament. Yes. These resurrected saints who rise out of the grave.
2: I forgot about that part and then sort of reading it this morning going, oh, so they left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection.
1: Yeah, that's important. And so it wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead that they left their tombs. Mm. So the earthquake is clearly what opened the tombs, whether they were resurrected immediately and sat in the tombs for three more days or whether... (laughs) They also then just resurrected and left when Jesus did, is up Mm. for debate. But they didn't leave their tombs until after Jesus resurrected.
2: And sort of saying, as a result of Jesus' resurrection, Mm. not his death, Mm. they were resurrected.
1: And as for who they are, we honestly don't know. We don't know whether they were recently deceased disciples who now have a chance to follow Jesus and start the early church. We don't know whether they're well-known Old Testament figures who go around and preach the gospel for a bit and then ascend up to heaven later. Like, who knows? Like, there's Mm. so much uncertainty about this section. But what we do know is that the death and resurrection of Jesus was an immensely powerful event and caused a lot. There's sort of been
0: so many emotions. Like, there would have been shock from them coming back, excitement that they've risen, like, but then also just, like, so much going on.
1: Oh, yeah. And then in the middle of all this drama unfolding with all the Jewish people hurling insults at Jesus – we again get a gentile declare the truth which is such a interesting way to end the story and our episode on the death of jesus is mm. a gentile stands up and says surely he was the son of god mm. the jewish messiah again authenticated by a gentile source
0: I just learned so much that I had no idea about. I kind of just summed it up like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, like really basic, but I just didn't realize how much was behind it. So that was really Mm. interesting as a newbie to learn that, really powerful and crazy.
1: For me, the thing that I've never thought a lot about, except it just kept coming up, over and over again, as we recorded our episode Mm. just then, is how in control Jesus was. Like, I've never super thought about it until this episode, is that at any point, Jesus could have called this whole thing off. He willingly gave up his spirit. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly got arrested. He could have literally prayed at any other point except the location where Judas knew he was. And yet just the willingness of Jesus to go through all of this even though we know he had reservations cuz he prayed that prayer but he was prepared to go through with all of it for our sake and that's that's amazing
2: i think my takeaway is just how scummy the the religious leaders were of how sort of really so it just sort of reinforced how many th- rules and everything that they were breaking in order to to get to him and the lengths that everyone went to yeah it's just um i think yeah my takeaway is there's just this deep sadness about it about it all that People were willing to betray and and put him to death and put Jesus to death. But as we will find out next episode, as well as we have this sadness uh, about it all, that is not the end of the story. There, we still have this next part that we will get to, where the great celebration and happiness will will be. And so that is where we uh, leave it for for this week. And as we exit out of uh, this episode, just again. We have our Q&A episode coming up, so put in your questions so that we can attempt to answer them in that last episode of, of the book of Matthew. And like we say always, if you like the show, leave us a comment, leave us a review. It really helps us in in the algorithm. And don't forget to uh, follow, follow us on social medias, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. As we come to an end, Lockie, can I just get you to pray for us?
1: Absolutely. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what you did on the cross. We thank you for your willingness to go and die for our sake. Um, we're just so, so grateful for that. And so allow us to remember that this week, but also remember your resurrection as we come to look at that next week.
2: Amen. Amen. Lockheed Morgan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you everyone for listening and watching, and we will see everyone next week for the resurrection. Bye. Bye.
0: A Mustard seed Creative Production.